Good morning. I want to welcome everyone uh, here. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your grace, your love, for the freedoms that we enjoy in this country uh, for now. And thank you for this class and what it has meant. Um, thank you for the work that you have done through us, through Tim, uh, and through the class uh, corporately. Please continue the work of, of changing hearts and minds, because that's the only way that uh, any transformation for the good is going to occur. I ask these things in your name. We are doing lesson number five in the quarterly. Uh, it's called Jesus is the Master Teacher. Just from the title, Jesus is the Master Teacher, what would it be that distinguishes him as the Master Teacher? Our Creator. Okay, uh, unpack that a little bit. He's the beginning and the end. He is He's our everything. I guess it, it depends on what law lens you're looking for. Yes, it does. Yes. No lies. Okay, so he, he's the source of truth. Uh, that that would be a that would be a good start for a, a teacher. Uh, she said he's our, he's the creator. The designer creator is the uh, is the the pathway that I was I was going down. Um, if you're going to have an instructor in any discipline, it, it it'd be wise to have that instructor as the actual designer of that discipline. You don't want you don't want me working on a Ferrari Formula One race car. You want the designer of the Ferrari Formula One race car doing the work, doing the teaching and instructing for it. So having our designer who is life original, unborrowed, underived, he does and he designed life on this planet to function in accordance with his perfect design law he's not a bad choice for a master teacher then is he so the the um, the verse for Sabbath lesson for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ this is from 2 Corinthians 4 6 did any other any other scriptural passages come to mind when you when you read that or when you hear that? John one. John one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. Through Him all things are made that have been made. Anything else? How about Genesis one three. Let there be light. You command, this is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Okay? The, 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 so he made literal light shine and a metaphoric light shine. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Psalms 19.1. For the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Creation declares the glory of God. In Revelation twenty one twenty three, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Any thoughts? All right, moving on to Sunday's lesson. 
revealing the Father. This is from the lesson. Quote, Jesus is also the express image of his person. Term used here, the Greek word character, uh, is sometimes used of the impression a seal makes in wax or the representation stamped on a coin. So Jesus is the, quote, exact imprint of God's very being. If we wish to know the Father, we must listen carefully to what the Master Teacher says about him, and we must watch the Master Teacher as well. Father is seen in the Son. I think this is very well said by the lesson, and I want to, I want to take a minute here to now to conf- affirm the lesson this week, because it's, 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 very, it's very well done. It's, it, it's very, it's excellent. Um, I'm, I have been pretty critical of the lesson in the past, or past lessons, uh, done by other authors or edited by other people. Uh, this, this week's lesson is spectacular. So, um, so if, if this is true, we see the Father in the Son, and I think, I believe it is, then how do so many Adventist Christians promote contrary and contradictory doctrines like those contained in the penal substitution theologies? I mean, how, how do you square that circle? Yes, Wendell. We all come to grips with any idea from our own upbringing, our own paradigm, and often you cannot see another idea because your paradigm does not allow you to comprehend it. I, I think that's very well said, and I, I've been a victim of it as well. 20 years ago, I could not have... I could not have I could have only glimpsed design lock of concept from a from a distance, a blurry distance, because of my pre-existing biases, the biases I was raised with and then taught in, in at home and in school. There are many things in the physical laws, physics and whatnot, that I cannot comprehend. A light as being a particle. Yeah. As being, you know, it's just both a wave and a particle. Yeah. How does that happen? Don't understand that. And yet, that's because of the my ignorance, and also from where I come and how I understand things. I understand things much more concrete and physically. I mean, that's what we do, you know. And so, often because of that, when a new idea comes or a new paradigm or whatever, it's just incomprehensible and rejected. Well, my thought was, if this had been taught us back in school. In the beginning, how much uh, more meaningful religion would be to me today or would have been to me growing up, something like that. Now, understanding design law, everything I read, everything I read, that comes into it, even if it's not something religious. Right. I look at it and I look through the eyes of like design law. How is this? And it just really, truly opens up a whole new meaning to almost everything. Yes, it does. Absolutely. And that, that's a great point. Uh, you, if you watch a news story, through the lens of design law, things start making a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah, and then no less disturbing or sad, but they start making sense mm-hmm. from a cosmic uh, perspective and from an antagonistic design law versus imposed law or law of love versus the law of sin and death. Um, yeah, those things, uh, things start making a lot more sense. Even in talking with other people, mm-hmm. the same religion, 
about religion, and I'm thinking if I could only get them to understand design law, they would understand religion a whole lot better. It's like you don't even have time to tell people. As I was preparing for the lesson, I started thinking about some, I, I was thinking about the levels of moral development, the seven levels of moral development. And one of the, <clears throat> one of the, um, one of the things that often gets missed in the levels of moral development, or it gets said, but it gets, kind of gets said as an afterthought. And that is that, and it's important, it's an important afterthought, it's a critical afterthought. And that being that if you are functioning at level X, let's say four for example, which is the law and order level, uh, rules and, and doctrine level, you are only able to conceptualize in your head one level above. That's it. So if you're functioning level four, you, you on occasion might be able to conceptualize level five, but the ideas of a level six and seven will elude you. Okay, and I, what, I, what I think is happening is that, or what I see kind of trending in, in our lessons is this, is a slow uh, transition from a level four to a level five uh, theology in, 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 in the lessons of the last, say, over the last five years or so. Uh, because they were only able to, if they were functioning at level four, the authors or the, the editors or whatever, uh, then they, they're starting to begin to conceptualize level five, which is the moral influence level. That's what we're accused of doing. And we're accused of teaching moral influence theory, which uh, simply because that's the only level five is the only level that, that our accusers are able to conceptualize. And, and moral influence theory is basically that Jesus came to reveal the Father, emulate him, and everything will be great. Uh, that wasn't his only task. And... But if you've got to fall into a ditch, emulating Christ is not a bad one to, to fall into. Any thoughts? Yes. When you're when you are transitioning between ideas or, or baselines or whatever, by default you'll fall back into whatever you have previously been thinking. And so react in a given way to whatever is being presented to us. We may conceptually maybe agree to something else, but we react and reform and function in whatever we have been in until we have done the new way enough to create new pathways, new habits, new understandings. Correct. And if we've spent a lifetime uh, authoring certain texts, defending the old way, or building a set of uh, doctrines or fundamental beliefs, defending the old way, then that transition is going to be far more difficult. Because to, to, to stand up and say, you know what, all that stuff I wrote 30 years ago, I was wrong. That's difficult. It's Profoundly difficult. Sometimes it's not as much wrong as it is... It's like a little kid understanding and then to someone else. And so, is it wrong? It may not be mature, but it may not be wrong. Uh, that's a much better way to frame it. Absolutely. 
But sometimes... Sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes it's wrong, but, but sometimes it's just immature. Right. Right, well said. So if, if Jesus is the, quote, express image of God, um, uh, how, how, many, then how many of our dogmas uh, that we were raised with need to be rejected? You name any of them? I don't understand. If Jesus accurately reveals the Father, if, the fa- if Christ and the Father are one, if you, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, according to Christ, then there are a number of Adventist dogmas that, that need to be rejected outright. Can you name any of them? Name one, get it started. Well, if you guardian angel will go to certain places. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. That's one I didn't think of. So, okay, so yeah, your guardian angel will not, uh, will not follow you into the theater. However, the recording angel will. The recording angel has a, a special dispensation to enter a, a movie theater. But the guardian angel can't. He has to wait at the door. The one that jumps to mind first, uh, and I probably couldn't name which of the 28 it is or if it's one of those, but is the idea that God is the judge and Jesus is our advocate facing the judge and defending us from God. From an angry judge. From an angry judge. Yeah. You know, any time that we have a doctrine that gives God a split personality like that, um, it needs to be questioned. And, you know, I remember not probably 10, 12 years ago, in my immature early stages, getting this glimpse of, you know, talking, praying to Jesus, and then having the thought to pray to God, and my initial response was, (gasps) Right. Jesus, I like praying to. This God guy, uh, he he frightens me. Yeah. So, but, But that was enough for me to realize that there was something wrong. You know, so so realizing that Jesus and God are one, and then you start reading these verses, you know, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Get reconciliation. Wednesday and Thursday lesson, yeah. Excellent, yeah, that's well, that's well said. So, yeah, okay, good. Rejecting any doctrine that, that has Christ uh, pleading, one member of the Godhead pleading with another member of the Godhead to be loving, forgiving, uh, and not lash out in anger. One that sticks out to me because I taught my kids this was that if there's one sin that you forgot to ask forgiveness for, you're doomed. Yeah, that's a that's a great that's the one I didn't think of. Uh, but and thank you. This is see, this is why I ask these questions. I I have went back to my adult son that I remember saying that to me. He's like, "Oh, mom, it's okay. I'm an adult." I'm like, "No, I want you to know that's not true." Yeah. Yeah, that's. That's hard. The one, the one, the top of my list was the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of our obedience. That's inaccurate. It's not an arbitrary test of obedience. Okay, I was taught that. Now, this may not be, you may not see this in any of the 28 fundamental beliefs, but it's a, it is a dogma uh, that is taught in Adventism currently. Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience. It's only an arbitrary test of obedience if God is arbitrary. The God I know is not arbitrary. He does things for a reason. And he, reve- he reveals enough of his, uh, his character and his law to reveal that he's not arbitrary. Wendell. Continuing with what Eve said, though, um, Christ is a friend of sinners. So is God the Father. That's right. 
John 14, 9. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I've been with you this long and you don't understand who he is? I'm just like him. I'm, I'm him personified. You, know, you can only imagine the frustration he must have felt uh, in, in trying to convince you know, not only church leadership, but his own, his own group of 12. Philip, you know, show us the Father. Really? I have two boys. Neither one of them are a perfect reflection of their father. And I think we as human beings tend to put it kind of on that level. It's like, well, if you've seen my son, you've seen their dad. Nuh uh. So it's hard for some people to look at that as well. You've seen the son, Jesus, you've seen the father. Because are the boys here on earth exactly like their fathers? No. That's a good, that's a good point, one I hadn't considered. Uh, so, yeah, we, we get, we're constrained by our human, our finite human brains to... Um, to what is exactly does the sun mean in heavenly terms? What is the sun? We think of the sun as conceived by a mother that has a father. It's yeah. Jesus like that. Mm-hmm. So. Good point. Thank you. See, this is why you should be teaching. Uh, another one. Jesus put all sins, past, present, and future, on Christ at the cross and punished him for it. This you can find in Adventist writings in Spectrum Magazine and a few other uh, little tidbits. It may not be expressly said in our 20 minute, 28 fundamental beliefs, but it's a dogma that's there. Right. The only people who go to heaven are Adventists. You know how you'll be able to recognize them? They all have watches on their crown. <laughs> Old Adam's joke. God won't burn you in hell forever. No, that would be evil. No, he'll use his power to keep you uh, to keep you alive in order to burn you only as long as you deserve. Now let's join hands and sing Kumbaya. Doesn't that make you feel good? Okay, the, the, these are... Well, it actually made me feel good when I come into the church, to be honest with you. What? That, that doctrine? That we're only going to be burnt for a little while? Yeah, for a little while and not eternity looking up, watching everybody in heaven. But, but if you really unpack that, um, I think it's more malicious that he'll perform a miracle to keep you alive, to, to cook you as long as you need. Okay? The fundamental premise of that is God's a source of death and destruction and pain and suffering. How, how, is, it, how is the solution for human suffering... More human suffering. How, how does that solve the problem of human suffering? It doesn't. There's also the, um, the idea that the place of eternal burning fire is the place you want to avoid. Yes. When, in fact, that's actually God's presence. Correct. That's exactly right. The, the place of eternal fire, the place that the healing fire is, uh, is the very presence of God uh, where billions function in that fire is, is the source of life. All right, Monday's lesson, Revealing the Father, continue. They, did, they dedicated two days to this, which is fantastic. The, consider the Ellen White quote in the middle of the lesson. It's from uh, Education, page 74 through 76, and there are select uh, parts of the quote. The light appeared when the world's darkest was deepest. Think about that for a minute. There was but one hope for the human race, that the knowledge of God might be restored to the world. 
Christ came to restore this knowledge. He came to set aside the false teachings by which those who claimed to know God had misrepresented him. He came to manifest the nature of his law. Which, which law? His design law. To reveal and to reveal his own character of uh, to reveal in his own character the beauty of holiness. Now, have you ever considered that 2,020 years ago, or give or take 2,050 years ago, when the the Jewish nation was obeying all the laws that they'd set up, that's when. Human, human, humanity was at its darkest. Worshiping idols and you know, setting things up on the hills, that wasn't as dark as... Yeah, they're having fertility orgies and, and sacrificing their young to, to gods of metal and wood. No, that, that wasn't as dark as... This point. Literally believe, uh, obeying every minutia of the Mosaic law. Wendell. That goes back to our recent premise here in this class has been the divine law versus enacted law. And they were, they were worshiping enacted laws. Yes. Rather than God as a designer. Correct. Okay. They were worshiping a being who could and was willing to enact and do these terrible things they believed to be true. So they were worshiping a God that was the impersonization or the representation of what Satan truly is. When I read that, the light appeared in the world's darkness was deepest. I looked at it as the reason it was the darkest was not so much because of what we think is sin, you know, but there was the less knowledge of a true God at that time. It was man-made laws. They were worshiping man-made laws and not God-made laws. We're back in the time when they were worshiping idols, whatever. They still had people that were worshiping the true God at the same time. But now these people were following man's laws, rules, regulations, whatever, and not God's. So that's why it was so dark. They, had, they weren't worshiping, honoring God's laws. When I read this passage, uh, just my, my brain went in, in, a, in all sorts of different directions. I mean, didn't, didn't, the, didn't the Jewish church leadership have the scriptures? They, they literally had, they had scripture. But yet they're the ones that crucified Christ. Didn't they have the oracles of the prophets? Didn't they have the, the Ten Commandments? Wondering what level of moral decision making do you think Christ entered the world in? Was it level one through four? You wonder if he went through the, the stages as a child? Um, yeah, I, I have wondered that. In fact, I, I... Not, not him, but... The level of moral decision making in the Jewish nation. At that oh, in the nation. Oh, I think that. What kind of paradigm did he have to break through? Oh, I think he. I think they were. They were level four, uh, dipped in concrete and wrapped in rebar. I mean, they. They were. I don't think they were, anything, any, anywhere near. Uh, yeah, it was. It was law and order. These are these are the rules. Follow the rules. Where can we get a list or whatever of the moral laws? More, more levels of moral development. Uh, there's, Tim has a blog on him. Just search the search the website for. The beginning when he first started, way back then. 
Yeah, type type seven levels into the search box, and I think you can find his blog. There's a PowerPoint presentation that you can download from the website as well, where he did an hour talk on the levels of moral development. Wendell? We in our current culture believe that information changes behavior, and it does not. It has been proven repeatedly that we can learn all we know, and it will not change our, our behavior whatsoever. Despite what sex educators would hope to tell us and all sorts of stuff, etc., it's been shown repeatedly it doesn't work. It's interesting that in the Jewish culture, everyone, every Jewish young person coming up had to memorize the first five books verbatim. Mm -hmm. The rabbis had to memorize the entire law, which was the um, entire Old Testament up to that point. They had to memorize that, and yet it had not changed their behavior or character at all because they had not been changed by the Spirit. Their heart had not been changed. Right. So information by itself does not change you. Okay, level one is um, reward and punishment. Okay? What's, what's determined as moral is whether or not you get rewarded or whether you get punished for it. This is the this is the the foundational level. This is where the child operates. It's also where bacteria operate. Bacteria and amoeba will avoid uh, an irritating stimulus and gravitate toward uh, a food source. So, reward and punishment. The uh, level 2, I believe is called marketplace exchange. Uh, that's the you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back uh, process. You help me out, I'll help you out. You do things in order to get a benefit from it. Uh, level three is uh, social conformity, I believe. That's what whatever the crowd, whatever the herd says is moral, that, that defines what is moral. Social conformity. Uh, there are lots and lots of people operating at level three right now. <laughs> Whatever, whatever's popular, that must be what's right. Whatever your pastor says must be right. Yeah, right, exactly. Level four is law and order. Rules are made up, violations of the rules are wrong. Obedience to the rules are right. And that's what defines what morality is, is the codification of the morals. You'll get punished if you break the law. You'll be rewarded if you don't break the law. In levels one through four, the focus is always on what I can get, me. Level five is, is the beginning stage of where your focus is on what's best for others. Level five is the because it's good for others, love for others. Level six is... We're functioning in harmony with design law. Principle-based living, thank you. So you understand the principles uh, of design law. You live in accordance with them. And level seven is the cooperating friend of God. That's where you have love for others. You understand the principles of godly living, the principles of design law, the laws of health, the laws of worship, the laws of liberty, the laws of love. And then you cooperate with God in sharing that with others. I have a question about that. 
Okay, about level seven. Yeah. Does it take a lot of um, burning in the fire to get to that level? The uh, crucible of no, of I'm cleansing. Talking about a, a God-loving burning in the fire. Yeah. Not a trial and tribulation. Yeah. No, I, I know where you. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I would imagine. Yes. I'll let you know when I get there. Because I don't think I'm at level seven yet. Yeah, that's the work of a lifetime. It's the work of uh, eradicating the character traits uh, and cooperating with the Holy Spirit and eradicating character traits that are harmful and embracing those. Uh, I hear you say that. Why? I say that because I tend to be one of those people who try really hard. So it's good to hear somebody who's been around the block in here to say they're not at level seven yet. I don't know. I don't think so. Now, there's some parts of my morality that still function at level four. There's still part of the law of worship, like what you were worshiping, and that's why it's so important to have a, the right understanding of the character of God. Because the more we we worship Him, the more we pay attention to Him, the more we learn from Him, the more He's working in us to make us more like that. And that's the process of growing. Well said. So I think it's fairly clear that the Jews did not know God. Otherwise, they wouldn't have murdered him on a cross uh, when he came and taught in their synagogues and healed their sick and um, ministered among them and to them. They, they embraced a God construct that was a God of power. They wanted a, they wanted a God, they had a preconceived notion about what a Redeemer was going to be, about what a Messiah, how a Messiah would function and how he would behave and how he would look. And their conception was a God of power that was going to throw off the shackles of, of Roman oppression and was going to make the Jewish nation the a world power and then their their bigotry would be embraced and and they'd live happily ever after he would, they wanted him to set up an earthly kingdom a kingdom of coercion and power there's no question that god could have done that from a standpoint of power yeah but his character forbid him from doing that yeah i guess i would choose a different word than forbid but yeah i i I agree with your point. It's, it would not have been in harmony with his character. To do what now? To form a kingdom of power. To, 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 exercise, to exercise power to overthrow Rome. And he couldn't have had a kingdom that was truly like him. That's right. True. Yeah, exactly. Because how do earthly powers function? Power. By the exercise of power. Whether it's a war of aggression, whether it's uh, a distribution of wealth to a certain group of people and taking it from a different group of people, whether it's uh, the formation uh, and imposition of arbitrary laws and the selective enforcement of those laws. Remember how God dealt with the earth. The whole universe was watching how, what kind of a God he was. Yeah, exactly. It was more than just earth involved. He exercised power, days one through six. And then on day seven, he stopped exercising power. And he he revealed, in my opinion, the most misunderstood facet of his character. That's the facet of, of uh, allowing freedom. Okay, 
Most of Christianity does not understand the law of liberty. They function the way the earth functions. They, fo they function the way earthly governments function. They do not understand liberty and freedom. It just occurred to me that um, I wonder if part of what they were doing, you know, they had all the stories of, you know, we wandered away from God, and so he turned us over to uh, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or, you know, whoever. Um, and then when we turned back to God, you know, he, he brought us back. And, you know, I'm wondering if part of the reason they were so focused on the law at that point is they were just like, we are going to obey the law so much that God will have to step in and kick the Romans out instead of realizing that the Romans were still there. You know, you're under oppression now with, the, with obeying the law. You know, it's, it's almost like they were trying to force God by their obedience to come in and do what they wanted, and then when he did come, that's not what they wanted, so they rejected him. And it makes me wonder how many Christians are doing that today. You know, how how are we trying to focus so much on the law? You know, I mean, talking back again about the stuff that we were taught as kids, you know, you're not going to heaven unless you keep the Sabbath. And keeping the Sabbath was this whole list of oppressive rules. Mm -hmm. Um and yet, in what is it, Isaiah? He says, unless you delight yourself in the Sabbath, you're not keeping it. And so there's like this, I wonder what we're missing. You know, how many are actually missing? How many are trying to force God to come now by focusing again on the rules? And then we, we will repeat the, the history that they did. Oh, I think it's absolutely, I think it's, it's virtual certainty that history is going to repeat itself. Most of Christianity is looking for a, a uh, dictatorial type of coming of the second, the second advent. Somebody who will come and beat down their enemies. And yeah, there's, there was a pastor at some megachurch in Seattle who's famous for, or infamous for saying, you know, I want, when, when Christ returns, he's going to have a tattoo on his thigh and, 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 a, and a rod of iron in his hand. He's coming to kick ass and take names. Okay, that that's a really. I mean, is that is that the is that the God construct? Is that what you want to? Is that what you want to believe the 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 second coming of Christ is going to be like? Okay, and if if our theology is correct and Satan is masquerading as an angel of light and he's going to impersonate Christ before Christ's second coming, guess what kind of God he's going to give people? Angry people want an angry God. He's gonna yes, he's gonna give he's gonna speak in, in melodious tones. He may float above the ground because you know if he can't touch the ground, he can levitate himself, uh, and he's going to be very apologetic, but methods are still gonna be coercion and violation of liberty. And I'm sorry if you don't worship on this day, uh, I'm I'm gonna have to we're going to have to exercise power and force to to make you conform. It breaks my heart, but it's what I have to do because I'm Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, uh, much of Christianity and sadly some of Adventism is still is looking for a God of power that's coming to to wipe away this, you know, to eradicate the sewer bringing up the subject of blogs. If you've not read Tim's blog on Christ's parables, 
which uh, is is fairly recent. It's sometime in the last four or six weeks. Um, you're missing out. I would I would encourage. I included the link in the notes uh, to that blog. Um, he goes through and he breaks down every single parable that Christ told, and the overarching theme to every every one of them is a revelation of design law, how reality works. The uh, the parables of Jesus. Uh, I encourage you to download the notes or, or go to the website commonreason.com and and check it out. I didn't include them all because that would have been a lot of pages and copying and pasting. But every single parable that he told it reveals God's design for life and how to apply that design to our current state and being out of harmony with that design. Um, so. The lesson spent two days on um, this idea that Christ came to reveal the Father. And no question, he did. But was that all that was needed? Was that all he did? What, what else was needed for salvation, for, for, for uh, uh, a healing for the human state, the human condition? Perfection of his character. A cure? Could we say remedy? Yeah. Perfection of of his character. Uh, unpack that a little bit, please, Wendy. Well, perfection in the biblical sense of completeness and maturity. Of his human character. Correct. Yes, exactly. The, the working out, the, the restoring of mankind to, to its original design nobility. Right. The, and achieving the state Adam was supposed to have achieved, which is a maturity perfection of character. That had to be done first. He had to, to work out in his humanity the perfection and maturity of character. And he did it through suffering. Hebrews says once he became perfect through suffering, now he's the, the source. Okay, so he was not born perfect. He was born sinless, but he was not born perfect. He had to work out that perfection by the choices by the choices of his human brain, up to, all the way up to the temptations in the desert, temptations in uh, the garden, all the temptations to save and serve self, all the way up to the cross. He saved others, why can't he save himself? Come down from the cross and we'll believe. Think about that. Think that was powerful temptation? Ella White says in Gethsemane, he was tempted to continue his mission. He's, uh, Satan tempted him, and, and what, a, what an incredible temptation that must have been. You, I mean, you can, hear, you can hear Satan right now. i got, I got to hand it to you, my old commander. You've, uh, you've, done, some, you've done some impressive work. But you're going to leave the ministry of these clowns? They're asleep. They they can't. How, how, how are you going to leave the? How are you going to leave your work to these these guys? You 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 should probably. Uh, you got a lot more work to do. But he didn't even sin in thought. Oh, I know. Exactly. Not a, not even a thought. But I mean, think about how powerful the temptation would be to continue the ministry till he was fifty or sixty. That must have been that must have been a difficult one. But how could you not even think 
of something I know. bad. I know. Mean, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, you can't. That's by achieving a perfection of character ahead of time. And, th- and think about this. I've, I've, uh, I've read um, Sigve Tonstad's book. It's called God of Sense and Traditions of Nonsense. I've read that thing four times now. And it, it's, a, it's a deep read. I mean, I'm not... Every time I read it, I have to go to a dictionary lexicon to look up words that I, I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, but he, he brings out an excellent point in there, and it, every time I read it, it just it gets me. The idea that if Christ had had acceded to the crowd, if he, if he had succumbed to the temptation to remove himself from the cross and hover there with, with some glory, there would have been some in the crowd that would have believed. But it wouldn't have been a violation of their freedom. That miracle that you would have performed would have been coercive. Proof, proof positive can be coercive. Where you're left with no other option to, but to believe. And you believe out of a sense of fear or out of a sense of, of obligation. That's not how God operates. He provides evidence. And he leaves people free to make up their own minds. Yes. Where do you get the notion that Jesus never even had a thought? Because thoughts cross our mind and they aren't. They can be from the devil, they can be from whatever. It's still a thought that crosses our mind. We have the choice whether we reject it or accept it, but it doesn't mean the thought never entered his mind and he didn't just reject the bad thoughts. But it, where do we get the idea that he didn't cross it? Because that makes us think we have no hope when a bad thought crosses our mind. And that's not necessarily true. I don't think that he had a, a thought while he was hanging on the cross. I don't think he I mean, it was. It's evidenced by what he said. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay, and he did. He didn't have a. He didn't even have a thought that I wish this was over. I'm tired of this. Or I wish they would die. I wish they would. I wish they would stop. Because I think if that thought had crossed his mind. And he'd given any validation to it. Twelve legions of angels would have... But that's the key, if he'd given any validation to it. It doesn't mean the thought didn't enter his head and he immediately rejected it. Well, I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying he enjoyed the process. That's not, that's not what I'm saying at all. But to say a thought never crosses our mind, because that's part of how the devil speaks to us and tempts us, is through a thought. And, and so that would make me really discouraged. Wasn't the last thought that he had like that is when he told God, let it be your will. Yeah, I mean, the, the, what, what, did, what did he say on the cross? He had pity. You know, it's when you understand that and you see somebody who is making a mistake, who is doing something very wrong, even if it is against you. How you feel about that person changes. Um, and, I mean, you can see it. Uh, I, I read it in, uh, what's her name? The lady who was in the internment camps. And her sister had a completely different view of the very people who were oppressing them than she did. And when she saw that, she realized that there was like a, a completely, that it's a, it really changes how you think. And... I think by the time he reached the cross, he was settled 
this is how it is. And so when he looked out on these people who were injuring him, who were killing him, he had compassion on them. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. What do you mean they don't know what they're doing to, to him? They know exactly what they're doing to him. They didn't know what they were doing to themselves. Right. Um, and I think that's the perfection of character that he, he had finally achieved and now offers to us. And I think that we will, we will eventually get to the point where those, those thoughts won't even cross our mind. Okay, does this mean that he never had thoughts? He had thoughts all the time. Yes. The devil, the devil provided him with lots of them that were rejected. Yeah. It's, and it's the practice of the rejection. You know, it, it changes you. I mean, there's there are things that I thought growing up about who I was and what God thought about me that were all toxic. You know, just terrible things. And through a process of literally retraining my brain, um, some of those thoughts would, would come up and I'd be like, oh, nope, that's a lie. Shove that aside. But until that point, those thoughts had power. So, you know, it's the thoughts may still be there. They still may pop up from time to time. But now, you know, just, yeah, that's, that's just another one of those things popping up. You know, like, oh, it's not true. Um... So like I was saying, as you grow, as you change, they lose their power. And I think by the time he reached the cross, by the time he reached Gethsemane, yeah. um, that, was, that was it. Some of you somewhat will agree with what I'm saying. And I, I, I think, and I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I just think it's really dangerous to say we know Christ, what Christ's thoughts crossed or did not cross Christ's mind. Because we don't know what crossed his mind. There's no record of what crossed his mind other than what he said. And we can deduct from that, like Eve said, that he had come to have complete compassion upon them. But to say that, you know, I mean, there was a point in which he, he asked for the cup to be removed. That's right. He, he a human thought. He struggled. He rejected it. That's right. In the garden, he struggled mightily with the desire to save himself. This is the human, this is the, this is the Mary half of his DNA, the human half of his DNA, struggling for survival of the fittest. And that's what was eradicated. But that's... And it was eradicated through his decision-making and, and his choices. Right. And that's what crossed his mind. Right. No, I'm not saying it was a sin to think it. I see where you're coming from. It's dangerous to put words in his mouth or to to assume that we know what he was thinking. But I think the evidence is quite clear based on what he said on the cross and based on what he actually did. And I guess I guess I was getting the impression that it was being said that if, if a cro thought crosses your mind, well, you just sinned. No, 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 no. No, okay, uh, thank you. I... Thank you for clarifying that. No, that's not what I'm. That's not what I'm saying at all. Okay. Okay. Wendell, you... when you're done with this discussion, we can move on. I think we're. I think we're going to. In Ephesians, in the remedy, the devil tempts us through our emotions. So don't give him any opportunity to confuse you or lead you astray. Two verses later. Do not speak unwholesome words, for your words react on your mind. 
So he had to make a choice. Yeah. Even if the devil did tempt him on the cross. We yes. know that he wasn't tempted on the cross to come down. Okay. Right. But he made a choice to not let those emotions. Yes. Desire. Thank you. And if, if you remember from Tim, Tim's book, The uh, Gache Brain, the hierarchy of the brain, the, uh, the spiritual nature, which includes worship, I mean, which includes conscience, uh, reason, and judgment, that should be the governing. That's how Adam was designed for his brain to govern. And then through an exercise of the will, we have, then we have beliefs, and, and then at the bottom should be uh, emotions. Emotions are the icing on the cake. Now, the, the problem is the sin has inverted that. And now most of us are being led by uh, emotions uh, seasoned by beliefs and reason and, and judgment and conscience are at the bottom. Jesus, re- he recorrected that. He recorrected that brain design to the normal, to the design state. Uh, so, yeah, he was tempted. Very powerful emotions were tempting him in the garden and in the cross. He used his reason and judgment uh, with a clear conscience to reject those temptations. And he was able to do that because he had all along yes. been making... He All along, he had exercised his will to, to choose to reject uh, powerful temptations and emotions and feelings. Wendell, go ahead. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and I read that, I talk, it talks about the humility of Christ becoming a servant to whatever, and that he was humble or whatever, and it almost... In my mind, when I read it in times past, I've always thought, oh, he had become humble. But if God the Father would have come, it would have been just like him. Identical. And so I think God the Father is humble. He is a servant. He is constantly providing from his character and resources for the sustenance of the universe. He is humble and a servant. He is not... He didn't become a servant. He already was a servant. It's just he is now in a human role as a servant. So from from that passage in in Philippians um, 2, 1 through 11, from the New Standard Revised Version, um, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he's in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Uh, And from the... New King James Version. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Again, from Tonstad's book, um, the term that is used for robbery uh, in this passage, in the New King James, or the Greek term, it's a Greek term that implies Taking by violence, we we would consider that maybe armed robbery or, or uh, armed carjacking. It's a it's a robbery where there's there's literal violence included, and is what gets missed in this passage is Paul is trying to contrast and compare Christ with a, a different being. Okay, and, and and the other texts come to mind. Any bells getting rung when you when you read this text, like Isaiah fourteen thirteen and fourteen, 
I, this is Lucifer speaking, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High. Or Ezekiel uh, 28, 2 through 19. Because your heart is proud and you have said, quote, I am a God. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. So I brought a fire from within you, I brought out a fire from within you, and it consumed you. Okay? So Jesus, fully God, preexistent, source of life, past, present, and future, he did not exercise any power, any of his power, in order to maintain that prerogative. He allowed his creation to murder him instead of using any of that power to prevent it. Meanwhile, a created being was so enamored with himself that he tried to rob God of the adoration of other created beings. This is quite a, this is quite a cosmic contrast. Any thoughts? That's what he wants from us. He, you know, Satan wants to be enshrined in our hearts, and so that we become more like him. And you know, God's trying to restore. He's trying to bring us back to Him. Right. I mean, you think about Jesus, if Jesus, the being the master teacher, what does this teach us? He who was equal with God did not consider it robbery. Okay, it, it teaches. Yeah, it teaches us quite a bit, or should. Uh, wow. So, yeah, exactly. Power and force. Well, I thought uh, I was going to run out of information, and once again, we've run out of time before that happened. So, bonus. It's power heads. Gracious Father, we we don't. I'm at a loss of what to say. Um, the The lessons that uh, you have revealed through your Son uh, are the they are the source of life, and, and He is the source of life, and and indeed the Master Teacher. Uh, please continue um, opening our minds to truth that you've presented uh, through Christ uh, so that characters can be transformed and we can hasten his coming. His name, amen.